please open in your scriptures this morning to two different books in the Bible. Let's start with Luke. Luke chapter 22. If you'll open to the Gospel of Luke, that's in your New Testament. There are four Gospels. Luke is the third. Matthew, Mark, Luke 22. And if you will, just stick a marker or anything there, just so you can easily reference it later. Where we really want to go this morning is to the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Eventually we'll look at Luke 22, but let's start with Matthew chapter 26. As I mentioned earlier, this is the account of the arrest of Jesus Christ just prior to going to the cross. Let me read to you just a few verses. Matthew 26, beginning of verse 51, and I'll read to you through 54. It reads this way. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Let me ask you a question. You may want to answer or not. Have you ever been arrested? Nobody wants to volunteer? A few of you are. A few of you. Good. I'm glad you did your time and now you're free. And uh, you're back on this side of the bars. Good, good. I've never been arrested, but I remember one time I thought I was going to be arrested. I was pretty sure I was going to be taken away. I was on my way home from Jersey City, New Jersey. I had nowhere else to go. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to see if I could find that iconic Maxwell House coffee. Neon light that used to flash. It's gone now, but... I always wanted to know, where is that? I would see it from the other side of the Hudson, from the New York side. I always wondered what it was. And here I was, about 22, 23 years old. I had a full gas tank, and I had nowhere to go. It was after 11 o'clock at night. My mother was right. Nothing good happens after 11. And I decided I would go find where this light was was radiating from. And um, it's an iconic sign. If you're not familiar with it, I'm sure you can look it up. Now, keep in mind that this was before the days of Internet and before Google, where you could just um, uh, look anything up. Back then, you actually had to go somewhere in order to really see it. And so off I went. I did not get very far in the streets of Hoboken when suddenly I had that sinking feeling of police lights on my bumper. Like, oh, that's the worst feeling, isn't it? When you just see those lights, you're like, oh, no. You look at your speedometer. You wonder, what am I being pulled over for? Police officer comes. He takes my documents. And he says, where are you headed? How embarrassing. (laughs) Bet you never heard this one before, right? I'm looking for the Maxwell House coffee sign. I hear it's good to the last drop. (laughs) He just looked at me. He did not believe me. He said, do you know what you're being pulled over for? And I said, no, sir, I have no idea. He said, your front wheel went over the line on that curve. I'm like, oh. And before I knew it, I had my hands up against the trunk of the car, my legs spread, and I was being patted down. My whole car was searched. 
And eventually he let me back in the car. In my mind was just wondering, what's my father going to say? What am I going to tell my mother? And the lyrics to that song just kept resonating in my mind. When I get that boy, I'm going to put him in a house of detention. Well, I'm on my way. Don't know where I'm going. But... And eventually the police officer said, you know what? There's nothing to see here. Just go home. And so I got in the car and I went directly home to Clifton. Never did find the sign and now the sign is gone. Well, the arrest of Jesus Christ, as we read here, is far from being humorous. Far from it. All four Gospels record this arrest. It's a crucial part to our understanding of what happened in the days of Christ prior to the cross. And what I did is I harmonized the four Gospels. In other words, each of the Gospels speaks to a particular audience, and so the author of that Gospel uh, includes information and others did not. Some of them include the same information, but most uh, of the information is you glean a little in Matthew, get a little more out of John, and then Luke says something else. Mark, of course, is the briefest one. And so you can, if you're interested, look it up in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John chapter 18. You can read those at home. But what I'm going to do right now for you is simply harmonize all the events that occurred on that night in just the few moments that um, these people arrested Jesus Christ. You'll recall that Jesus Christ was at at, um, the Garden of Gethsemane where he had been praying. His disciples had been falling asleep. Even though Christ had asked for them to pray along with him, they just couldn't stay awake. They fell asleep. And at this point, there in the garden on the Mount of Olives, which was uh, just east of Jerusalem, over and uh, above the Kidron Valley, was the Mount of Olives. Christ would often meet there with his disciples. It's still there. Olive trees are still there, hundreds of years old. And as Jesus Christ was speaking to his disciples, they heard the noise of a crowd coming up the hill. The footsteps marching upward, the clanging of swords and clubs, the uh, 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 swinging of lanterns and torches making their way up the path. And finally, when they reach the top, at the top, at the front of the crowd is none other than Judas Iscariot, one of the original 12 disciples, now the traitor. Judas approaches Jesus Christ and greets him with these words, Greetings, Rabbi. And he gives Jesus Christ the kiss. It was the kiss of death. And Jesus Christ turns to Judas and he says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then he says, Friend, do what you came here to do. And then Jesus Christ steps forward. He looks to the crowd with their lanterns, torches, and swords. And he says, who are you here for? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. When those words come out of the mouth of Christ, the mob is stunned. The text tells us that they draw back and they fall to the ground. Judas remains standing at the front. And Christ repeats, I am he. Take me and let these others go. Let my disciples go. All 11 of them, let them go. 
And that's when one of the disciples jumps in and asks, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And then Peter draws a sword himself, and he swings it at the head of the high priest's servant. His name was Malchus. And Malchus must have ducked, because Peter misses his head and instead cuts off the man's ear. I doubted that Peter was looking to cut off his ear. And that bloody ear falls to the ground, that dark ground. And Jesus Christ looks to Peter and says, no more of this. And that's when he says what we just read in chapter 26, verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Then he says, verse 53, Do you think that I could not appeal to my Father, my Heavenly Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? And then Christ bends over and picks up the bloody ear and restores it to the side of the face of Malchus. And then we're told in we are told in John 18, verse 9, that all this occurred, so quote, of those whom you have given me, I have lost none. The point being here that had they pulled out their swords and continued to fight, had Christ not restored the ear of Malchus back onto his head, there would certainly be casualties that night. There was going to be bloodshed, and not only the blood of Christ, disciples were going to die and so what does Christ do he stops the impetuous Peter from doing what he was determined to do now what I find amazing here besides what we've seen already is that the mob is not impressed how would you have responded had you seen the Christ pick up an ear and restore it to Malchus who must have been there on his own knees cowering holding his bloody face And now he's healed. The mob is not impressed. They still want to arrest him. Now maybe most of them didn't see what was going on. It was dark. But even those who were there to see it are not impressed. And they want to arrest Christ and they do arrest Christ. And so Christ turns to the mob and he says in chapter 26 of Matthew verse 55, Have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. And we learn that all this took place in order to fulfill the prophecies made about the arrest of Jesus Christ. My first point this morning in regards to what we see here, as we talk about raising up the sword, and of course 9-11 is a reminder of the sword being risen for the sake of religion. How Christianity differs from all other religions. We do not need to raise the sword to defend Christ. We need to defend his truth. But I assure you, he is able to defend himself. My first point this morning is for us to see the death of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see how essential it was. The forgiveness that he offers to us actually cost Jesus Christ Everything It cost him everything. It cost him his all. Here, Peter is once again trying to stop Christ from going to the cross. It's not the first time. 
The disciples are rather determined to stop Christ from going to the cross. You'll recall back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, after Jesus Christ had told his 12 disciples that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be uh, brutally beaten and crucified and die, it was Peter who takes him aside and he says, this will never happen to you. Peter said, I'm not going to let that happen. And to Peter's surprise, and maybe our surprise too, this is how Christ responds. Matthew 16, verse 23. He says, get behind me, Satan. He refers to Peter as the devil himself. Because Peter's being used by the devil. He doesn't stop there. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. And Peter must have said, what? You don't have in mind, Peter, what God has in mind. Your concerns are quite different. You'll notice here that Peter's good intentions was the equivalent of Satan's temptation to keep Jesus Christ from going to the cross. The servant of God, Peter, was unknowingly being manipulated by the devil, even though he thought he was being loyal, even though he thought he was being devout. He was actually carrying out the will of Satan instead. It's kind of frightening, isn't it? Peter had a good reason to try to stop the death of Jesus Christ. After all, he was being honest. He loved Christ. He was trying to be loyal to Christ. He was a man that had devoted his life to Christ. And so, like you, you would want to protect the Christ. But Peter also had messianic ideals. As we all learned this week, a dead queen cannot lead, cannot reign. Neither can a dead king reign. And so if Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior, the King, how would he be able to reign if he's dead? So we have to keep him alive. And with that messianic ideal was also Peter and the other disciples' belief that they would be rulers in the kingdom of Christ. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, Verse 46, an argument broke out among the twelve as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom of Christ. Who would be the prime minister? Who would be the secretary of state? Who would be the treasurer? Who would be the political leaders in this new kingdom? And so with the death of Jesus Christ, all this political power ambition would have been simply cast away. And so you could see why he wanted Christ to live. However, my friends, the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ was essential, and it could not be stopped. It is through the death of Jesus Christ that we are given his righteousness. Without his righteousness, we can never see the face of God as our friend in his presence. Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness. Now, now follow me here. This gets a little more theological than maybe you're accustomed to. But there are two kinds of righteousness of Christ. There is his active righteousness and his passive righteousness. 
His act of righteousness was that Christ was determined to obey his heavenly father so that in everyday life from day one till the day he died at about the age of 33, Jesus Christ actively obeyed. When he had the opportunity to sin, he said no. He actively obeyed God the Father. And this was his active righteousness. He did the right thing actively. He earned that righteousness by being obedient. But there was also his passive righteousness. His passive righteousness is the fact that he refused to fight back. He refused to say no to his arrest. He allowed them to arrest him, beat him, and kill him on the cross. This is called his passive righteousness. In other words, he did nothing. He just allowed them to do what they were determined to do. And this righteousness is important because it is this righteousness that is imputed to those who believe in Christ. That is to say that this imputed righteousness, this righteousness that Christ gains by being obedient, is taken from him and placed on you who believe in Christ. And your sins are taken and placed on Jesus Christ. It's a double transaction. His righteousness unto you by grace, we don't deserve it, and your sins placed on him, though he doesn't deserve it. And it is this righteousness that allows us to be born again, that allows us to be saved, redeemed, to become new creation. Without the death of Jesus Christ, there would never be this exchange. There would never be an atoning, a paying for our sins, Righteousness cannot be offered. And so Jesus Christ had to die. And there was no one who was allowed then to stop him. Uh, Take a look at what we see in Luke 22, verse 37. We're going to get back to it, but for now, just take a look at verse 37. It says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. I love Acts chapter 4. It says so much about what had to happen and God was determined to make it happen. Acts chapter 4, beginning of verse 27 and then 28. It reads this, as the disciple was preaching, he says, In the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom God anointed, gathered together both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the Jews, the people of Israel. But get this. They were gathered together by God, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had determined that this would be, and my friends, you cannot change what God has determined will be. And that's a good thing. Why? Because he's good and he's wise. Don't fear what God has determined. Without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness because there would be no atonement, no payment for the wrong incurred by our sins. In fact, Leviticus 17.11 makes it very clear, right? That the blood is what makes atonement. So we see in Matthew 20, uh, rather Matthew 16, if you go backwards just a little, 
we see that ignoring our need for the atoning death of Jesus Christ is actually cataclysmic. We do ourselves a great deal of harm when we ignore the need for the death of Jesus Christ for our own sake. Sometimes we think, well, it's not necessary at all. Sometimes we think it's not necessary for me, maybe for you, but not for me. But listen, it's cataclysmic to myself if I ignore my need for the death of Jesus Christ for my sake. We read in Matthew 16, 23, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When we do not realize our need for the death, the atoning death of Jesus Christ for ourselves, we are not setting our minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Christ had to die. And the truth is, he had to face this battle alone. It cost him his all. Well, let's move from the death of Jesus Christ to the power of Christ as we see it here in Matthew 26. The power of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, there is no need to defend Jesus Christ. That sounds a little harsh, but I want you to see that Christ does not need your aid. We need to defend the truth of Christ. We need to defend the truth in the scriptures. But Christ himself is able to defend for himself. Uh, take a look once again, Matthew 26, verse 52. Again, he said this to Peter. He says, put your sword away, put it back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, uh, I, I find it interesting that this verse here is often used as a defense for gun control. Right? Put away the sword, because anybody who who uh, lives by the sword will die by the sword, replace sword with gun. Anyone who lives by the gun will die by the gun. You see, we need gun control. That's not what this verse is about. I think here in Sussex County, I don't need to say that. But that's not what this verse is about. And some people will also argue that this verse is about being a pacifist. A pacifist is one who believes that war or violence is just simply unjustifiable. This is not a vote for pacifism. In fact, if we go over to John chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus Christ said very clearly, he said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. And when Peter was swinging the sword, Jesus Christ said, no more of this. Stop wielding your sword to defend Jesus. In Luke 22, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus Christ was saying that there's going to be the loss of lives if you keep swinging that sword. If you pull out your sword, Peter, someone is going to die tonight. And so put away your sword because this is not your day to die. This is not your day to die. I want you to see here that the cause of Jesus Christ, however, does not require violence. Again and again, historically, we have seen people fighting, literally fighting, with the sword, with the gun, whatever, for the cause of Christ, for the kingdom of God. I want to build a church, and I'm going to do it with a spear, a, an arrow, a sword, a gun, whatever it may be. My friends, the cause of Christ does not require violence. However, in life, in this world, there is a time for war. Nobody likes it. I certainly never wanted to be drafted. Thank the Lord I never had to serve uh, in a war. 
it's honorable to be in the military, but I certainly don't want to fight. And neither would I want any of my three sons to have to go to fight. I would be glad for them to wear a uniform. I just don't want them to have to fight. I think you understand what I'm saying. However, somebody's got to do it in order for us not to have to fight. Somebody else has to fight. Pacifists enjoy the ability to be a pacifist because there's somebody fighting on behalf of their pacifism. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 makes it very clear. There is a time for war. There's a time for peace. It reads this way. Uh, chapter 3 verse 1. To everything there is a season. And then it goes on and says, a time to tear a time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent, a time to speak. That's it right now. Time to speak, time to be silent. Right? A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. You'll notice from the text that Gabe read to us earlier out of Ephesians chapter 6 that there is certainly a war being waged in the Christian life, but it is a spiritual war that even at times manifests itself physically. And that's why the Christian is to put on the whole armor of God. It's the armor for the Christian, but it comes from God. Ephesians chapter 6. And maybe you notice that the sword of the Spirit is not an actual sword. It is the Word of God. We have two elements by which we fight with. One is the sword, the Word of God, and the other is prayer. All the other elements described there in Ephesians 6 is defensive. It is protective. If we want to make inroads in this battle, we have to use, we have to wield this spiritual sword, the sword of God, not the physical sword. It's not a tangible weapon. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.4, I mentioned it last week, says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The word of God has divine power to destroy spiritual strongholds. And let me remind you what Hebrews 4.12 says. That the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. The word of God is potent. Sometimes we think that the human sword is more potent. My friends, if we would use the word of God and wield the word of God more readily, with greater aim, I think we would be more successful. Keeping in mind that it's never right to fight for the right cause, but in a wrong way. You may have good intentions. And you may have a good cause. But it's never right to fight for the right cause in the wrong way. There is a time for war. There is a time to oppose bad government. But never should we fight for a good cause in a wrong way. The ends do not justify the means. We fight only when it is sanctioned by God. But notice that Christ does not need lawyers. Christ does not need warriors to assist him. He is our paraclete. You know, the, the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as the paraclete and Jesus Christ as the paraclete. The word paraclete is the Greek for advocate, from where we get the word lawyer, or in Portuguese, uh, avogado, 
advocate. An advocate is a counselor, a comforter, one who comes alongside of you. Jesus Christ is the advocate, the paraclete. We are not his paraclete. He is our paraclete. He's able to fend for himself. And so we read at verse 53, look there at Matthew 26. Jesus Christ is asking a question that he uh, does not expect for the disciples to answer. I wonder if they could. I, I assume they believed them, but there must have been some degree of doubt. Jesus Christ says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? One legion was about 5,000 Roman soldiers. He says, All I have to do is ask my Heavenly Father, and he'll send me, he'll send me 12 legions. That's 60,000 angels. That's about 5,000 angels for each one of them. The 11 disciples and Christ. Pretty good odds, would you say? There we see the mightiness of God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, describes God this way. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods. And Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. And then some people say, well, if God is so able to do for himself, then why should we serve him? Well, we don't serve him because he needs our help. We don't give ourselves our money, our time, our resources because he needs it. We give we serve because he's our God. Because he's worthy of it. Because we want to display our devotion, our love, our loyalty. Because we want to say, look, I submit to you because you are the almighty God. And I am grateful. And so I bow my life to you. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. In other words, you cannot stop God. You, you, you cannot stop God from doing whatever he wants to do. And again, don't be afraid of that because our God is good and our God is wise. You can trust him. Notice here too, as we're looking at the power of Christ, notice here also the power of prayer. Jesus Christ said, don't you know that all I have to do is ask, all I have to do is pray, and my Heavenly Father will provide? Jesus Christ is very much in tune with the will of his Father, and therefore he knows how to pray. You know why he did not pray for those thousands of angels to come? Because he knew it was not his Father's will, and neither was it his will. They had one singular will. There is one will within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ was able to pray so because he knew his Father's will and he accepted his Father's will. It is so much easier to trust in the Lord and obey God when we have the same will, when what he wants is what we want. And so Jesus Christ here very much restrains himself what was available to him, he says no. He refuses it. Why? Because he wants to make atonement for your sins. 
the power of prayer. As he prayed in accord with the will of his father. And therefore, because they had the same will, he was able to obey. Take a look as well at this third point. The rescue that Jesus Christ provides. You know, sometimes God rescues us by using very natural, everyday, ordinary means. I really appreciate this book that we're looking to read together on dreaming small. Isn't that so contra mundum, so against the, the, the flow of this world? You know, we're always talking about think big, dream big. You need more. Do you really? Well, I can use a little more, right? It's always a little more. Actually, most of us think we can use a lot more. We're always told to dream big. And here we learn that God uses the everyday small things of life to mold us and bless us. Don't be embarrassed by small. People always make fun of me about my height. They seem to be more troubled by it than me. I chuckle with them. But I blame my parents. I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) But in all reality, I tell my sons who are now taller than me, you'll get used to it. You do. Small is not so bad. Especially when we're talking about sitting, resting in the hands of God. God is there and in control. Notice here the rescue of Jesus Christ. Often we pray for God to intervene in our lives in supernatural ways. We want a miracle. But the truth is God uses everyday common natural ways instead. Instead of providing a miracle, if you're sick, you know what God often provides? Antibiotics. Or a hospital. Or health insurance. And he's been doing this way before you even got sick. Sometimes we say, oh Lord, there's, there's too much month left and not enough money. Please provide. Please put a check in the mail. And sometimes, you know, that does happen. It has happened to me. But usually, you know how God provides? By giving you a good paying job. Very natural means. God provided. Sometimes we are looking for wisdom. Oh, Lord, I need wisdom. And we expect this cloud of wisdom to come over our house and make its way down a chimney and fill our living room. And suddenly we know exactly what to do. Miraculously. But usually God works through natural means. And he gives us wisdom by giving us books. By giving us his scriptures. By giving us the preaching of his word. Very natural means. And whereas Christ does not need a defender, Christians do. And here Christ is indeed restrained, but the disciples are going to need rescuing. And God is going to use very natural means to rescue them. Go over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning of verse 36, is interesting because these words of Christ were just an hour or two, maybe three, before the arrest of Jesus Christ. So these are the words of Christ just a little bit prior to what we've been looking at in chapter 26 of Matthew. Look at Luke 22, verses 36 through 38. It says, Jesus said to them, 
But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword, uh-oh, sell his cloak and buy one. Make up your mind, Jesus. Should I get a sword or shouldn't I? For I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled in me, and, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. What you see here is that Jesus Christ is going to protect his disciples by very natural means. The problem was that Peter and whoever else was ready to fight before they had to fight. You see, they were looking to defend Christ. And Christ said, you don't need to defend me. Put your sword away. But you are going to have to defend yourself later. So in a very natural means, I'm going to protect you. You have money? Use it well. Get ready. You're going to need it. You have a knapsack to put your resources? You're going to have to be on the move. Get ready. You're going to have to defend yourself and do you have a sword? No? Well, then sell your cloak and buy a sword because you're going to have to defend yourself. You don't have to defend me, but you will have to defend yourself. And indeed, they did. Jesus Christ is saying, be prepared to defend yourself. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we're told to be ready to make a defense for what we believe in. Correct? But sometimes, having made a defense for what we believe in, we also then have to defend ourselves physically. That is not true here in America, by and large. But around the world, for the last 2,000 years, today more than ever before, people have been persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, today there are more people dying for the cause of Christ than ever before in history, compounded, put together. It's amazing, isn't it? It's hard to believe that people are losing their lives simply because they're doing what you are doing right now. I read this week of a church in China, 60 people who said we can't take the persecution anymore. And so they decided that they were going to look for asylum in South Korea. They made it to South Korea, their asylum was rejected. Now they're being threatened to be sent back to China. So they went to Thailand, and they're looking now to get asylum, religious asylum, here in the United States. If they do not get that asylum, they will be sent back to China, and I assure you, it won't be pretty for any 60 of them. Again and again, people are losing their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And I really find this interesting about, about Jesus Christ, about Christianity, how people react to Christianity. Uh, your opinion, or anybody's opinion of Jesus Christ, will either lift them up or, or, or lower them in the eyes of people. What they say about Christ, am I devoted or do I reject Christ, will either elevate them or reject them. And how often people are rejected because of their faith in Christ. If you go to the workplace and say, well, I'm a Buddhist. People will look at you and say, wow, wow, you're really in tune with your inner self. If you go to, to, to school and you say that I have this, my own faith, my own truth. You know the expression today, right? What, what's your truth? 
If you say that you have this homespun spirituality, people won't say, oh, that's silly, you can't do that. No, they say, wow, you are really self-aware. You're so self-determined, you know what you want. If people say, I embrace paganism, which is a religion, by the way, hedonism, paganism, People don't say, oh, that's disgusting. Oh, I don't want my children around you. They say, well, there's a person who knows how to have fun. Carpe diem. Seize the day. You probably have great weekends. Somebody says, I am a devoted Muslim. I have embraced Islam. What do we say? We say, well, I don't agree with you, but boy, I appreciate how devout you are. Even with atheism, people say, oh, you don't believe God exists? Wow, you are one person who calls it as she sees it. But if you say, I believe in Christ, that I'm devoted to following Christ, that I love Christ because he's my Lord and Savior, you know what they say? Whoa, Jesus freak. One of those born-againers. One of those people who are extreme. You can't trust them. They're prudish, dull, religious, judgmental. Somebody to avoid. That's here in America. In other parts of the world, you could actually lose your life. Lose your home. Lose all your resources for following Jesus Christ. And so Christ says, sell your cloak, buy a sword. Protect yourself. And many people around the world do just that. Christ is saying, be prepared through very natural means to protect yourself. I'm going to protect you through natural means. Go by a sword. Sometimes God protects us through supernatural means. And again, we call those miracles. A miracle is when God bends his own natural laws in order to suit our situation and rescue us. And maybe you've witnessed a miracle. Maybe you have seen a miracle in your life. I remember my wife suffered a third time from cancer, but when the doctor did uh, the uh, final surgery, it was no longer malignant. Miracle? I believe so. Well, maybe it wasn't cancerous that time. Maybe not. Either way, God's hand was on her. It sure did look malignant again. And then even the greater miracle, she gave birth to a third son. Now that was miraculous. Nearly impossible to happen, and it did. Miracles are infrequent, my friends, but God still does use miracles. But usually he uses the natural means to rescue us. Let let me close with this. I want you to see not only the power of Christ and all that I've said so far, But I want you to see also the hope of Jesus Christ in this text. The hope that Jesus Christ gives. Christ is able to undo your mistakes. Christ is able to undo your mistakes. How many? All of them. How often? Always. Notice here that Peter is rather brave, isn't he? But he is also very impetuous. Peter is very courageous, but it's rather pathetic as well, isn't it? 
And what Peter, to his surprise, what Peter witnesses is that as he's trying to be loyal, suddenly all that loyalty, all that bravado evaporates right before his eyes. And then, to make it even more difficult for him, Christ scolds him. Peter, that's enough. Put your sword away. Put it back in its place. And then he undoes everything that Peter did by picking up that ear and restoring it onto the face of Malchus. And he stops the potential bloodshed. Notice here, my friends, that you do not have to interfere with God's plans. God knows what he's doing. You do not have to interfere. You do not need to help him. You do not need to say, hey, listen, Lord, there needs a little tweaking right here because things are not going the way I thought it should be. No, 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 no. Let God be God. Believe that he knows what is best. He can fix your mistakes. And he does to anyone who would come to him in repentant faith. Now, maybe your mistake uh, was because of youthful passion. Uh, maybe it was because you were afraid of man more so than you are of God. Maybe, like Peter, you were just very impulsive. Whatever it may be, whatever errors, whatever things you did wrong in the past, whether they were sinful or not, God can fix your past. And he does. God is able to then bring peace to your life when everything seems to be unstable, when everything seems to be so volatile. God can come and bring peace to you and fix it. Sometimes there are ramifications, yes, but God will fix it. He will fix it so that you can move on, so that you can move forward so that you can live well. Notice that Peter lived very well after this episode. It wasn't his last mistake, but he lived very well because God fixed his mistakes. He restores us, and he'll do that for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you because you are a God of action, a God who comes to our side, to our rescue, with all power and wisdom, all grace and goodness, and you take care of your own. You take care of yourself. And for that, we thank you. Amen.